0: This is Incredible Stories Podcast, Episode 52, The Lost Banana. Well, hello again, everyone. It's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Virla, your Gamboge host. And thanks for being here on the little podcast that could, where I hope to bring you stories you probably haven't heard. And just a reminder to share the show if you like it. Even if you don't like it, share it anyways. Maybe someone else will like it. And, as always, you can send me a haiku or show note to contact at incrediblestoriespodcast.com. But let's stop monkeying around and let's talk about B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Yes, bananas. The ubiquitous yellow fruit found on breakfast tables and gym bags the world over is one of the world's most important food crops. And, rightly so, as the world consumes over 100 billion bananas each year. And in America, each person eats between 25 to 27 pounds of them a year. And if you live in America, and most other places where bananas don't grow, you're probably eating a banana type called the Cavendish. But did you know before 1965, there was a more delicious banana that most everyone ate called the Gros Michel? What happened to that variety and why are we relegated to eating the inferior garbage banana known as the Cavendish? Okay, I'll tell you. Here's what I know. Today, there are more than 1,000 different types of bananas. About half of those are edible. And, of all those bananas, they can be broken into two categories. Sweet bananas, or dessert bananas, that you can eat raw, like the Cavendish and cooking bananas that have to be cooked first in order to make them tasty. These are generally called plantains and are much starchier. You can find them in your grocery stores, usually near the root vegetables. Have you ever wondered where bananas come from? Other than your local market, of course. Where did this world-dominating fruit originate? Well, it's kind of hard to say. Because of its portability and ease of growth, It is generally just stated as having originated 10,000 years ago in Southeast Asia. But the place where we can pinpoint as banana domestication is the Cook Valley in New Guinea. And this domestication would have taken place about 5,000 BC. It then quickly spread to neighboring islands. Now these first bananas were the cooking variety, not the sweet variety that you could just eat right off the tree. I'll get into that in a bit. But let's continue with our brief history of bananas. So after bouncing around Southeast Asia a while, the banana made its way to India, which by the way is the world's leading banana producing country and can account for about 20% of the total global banana crop. But interestingly, they don't export that many bananas and only account for about 0.5% of the world's total banana export crop. Most of the bananas they grow are Cavendish. But back in 327 BC, India was important in banana exports, namely when Alexander the Great fought in India and wound up bringing the first bananas to Europe when he headed back to Greece. Over the centuries, Arab traders carried the banana all over, and by the 13th century, the banana was well established in Spain and North Africa. Now the word banana is derived from the Arabic word banan, which means finger. And that makes sense, because they kind of look like fingers. Well, as it was the time of exploration, and the Spanish were heavily involved with exploring all over, including the New World, their missionaries brought with them the banana to the Caribbean, where things really began to get interesting. In 1836, a Jamaican farmer named Jean-Francois Pougeot was walking through his orchard and noticed something a bit peculiar. Mm. Remember, at this time, all bananas were of the cooking variety, what we know commonly as plantains. But at this time, Jean saw that one of his plantain-producing plants, which normally bore green fruit, was sporting Mm. a striking yellow bunch of fruit. He was intrigued and tasted it. The fruit was sweet right off the tree. No cooking required. This mutant yellow sweet banana was quickly developed and sold commercially, which then became the parent of all known sweet bananas eaten the world over. Americans were first introduced to this new sweet banana largely at the 1876 World Fair in Philadelphia, and as you can imagine, the crave was strong. The Boston Fruit Company formed in 1885 specifically to fill America's banana demand and, by 1899, it had become the United Fruit Company by merging with another banana fruit company. You may know this company better by its name today, Chiquita, which is the leading banana distributor in the US and became known as Chiquita in 1984. But before we get ahead of ourselves, let's go back to the United Fruit Company, which had a lot of interesting dealings in Central America with governments. By 1901, the demand for bananas was so high that the production of the crop was very lucrative, so naturally companies tried to secure their supply. The U.S., largely with the Marines, would run many interventions in the regions to protect commercial interests of their fruit companies, which were essentially hoarding land use and manipulating governments to allow them to control more land, which would keep the citizens from accessing the land, etc. This is a complicated story, and there have been many books written about this time collectively termed the Banana Wars, so I'm not going to get into that here. But do note our term Banana Republic, which describes politically corrupt and unstable countries that rely on largely one export, i.e. bananas, came from the influences of the American Fruit Companies, largely the United Fruit Company. But this isn't a story of the Banana Wars. It's a story of the most consumed fruit in the world, and the tastier predecessor of the Cavendish, the Gros-Michel. The Gros-Michel, aka Big Mike, aka Fat Michael. Remember that Jamaican farmer? Well, that sweet mutant banana variety he found on his plantation was the Gros-Michel. It was delicious, large, had a thick skin, and lasted a while before spoiling, which made it an excellent choice for exportation. If you ask your grandparents or great-grandparents, they surely will tell you how amazing the Gros Michel tasted compared to the Cavendish. Well, that is until 1965, when it ceased being exported. Why? Well, let's look a bit deeper into bananas and what they are. Technically, a banana is a berry, and a banana tree isn't a tree at all. It is, in fact, the largest herb in the world. You may notice that your bananas you eat have no seeds, but actually if you look closely you can see tiny black dots in the middle of the fruit. Those are the seeds. In wild bananas, the seeds are much larger, and they reproduce normally like most other wild plants, pollinating of flowers and such. But their fruit is inedible, or at least not good for commercial consumption because the large seeds crowd out the flesh. I'll post some links in the show notes where you can see how big banana seeds can be and how to grow bananas if you're interested. But just know that the commercial bananas that we eat are essentially sterile and thus can only reproduce a different way. So bananas are known as a monocot. Basically, all flowering plants are either a monocot or a dicot. Without getting too deep into the weeds on this, monocots include plants like orchids, rice wheat, and grasses like sugarcane and bamboo. And like bamboo, bananas can reproduce through their rhizome, which is a horizontal root that can sprout new shoots and other roots. If you take a piece of the rhizome and plant it, it will sprout a new plant identical to the parent plant. It's kind of a very simple way to clone a plant, as each new plant is genetically the same as the original parent plant. As you can imagine, this lack of genetic diversity makes a plant, or anything really, susceptible to disease. So we have Central and South America, regions of the world which export the most bananas. Ecuador is the world's leading banana exporter, producing about 23% of the world's export crop, followed distantly by Guatemala and Costa Rica with 105 and 8.5% respectively of world banana export percentages. The banana of choice, of course, was the Gros Michel, until a fungal disease began showing up on banana plantations in Panama, which is where the disease got its name. Known as Panama disease, the fungus attacked bananas' root systems and over the next few decades it afflicted all the commercial banana producing plantations in other countries in the region as well. A big contributor to the destruction caused and spread of the disease was the fact that the bananas don't produce sexually, you know, through flower pollination. Because our fruit crop don't use seeds and reproduce through the rhizome method of cloning an original plant. All the plants' defense systems were identical and thus all met the same fate. But Josh, why didn't the farmers just isolate infected plants or not replant those? Well, that's a good question. But you see, banana plants infected with Panama disease wouldn't necessarily show symptoms of infection. 30-40% of new plants taken from other plants wouldn't show any outward visible symptoms of infection until it was too late. That's a high percentage of stealth infections. Also, Panama disease didn't need to survive on just a banana plant. It infected other weeds, which in turn wouldn't show signs of infection either, so it was hard to isolate and eradicate. Panama disease can also survive in soil for up to 30 years without a host plant. Now. Gros Michel producing plantations fought as hard as they could, trying to stubbornly hold on to the important and flavorful banana export. The industry of the yellow fruit was in serious turmoil during this time until they were forced to recognize there was no saving the Gros Michel, and in order to save their businesses, they looked toward another banana that was resistant to Panama disease. It took a few years, but before long everyone adopted the Cavendish as King Banana for the export business. It was a fairly smooth transition from the Gros Michel to the Cavendish and, by 1965, it was the only banana found in your supermarket. But who is this Cavendish newcomer? When one thinks of bananas, one thinks tropics. But it may surprise you that the Cavendish has its roots in jolly old England. Let's discover. To the Wayback Machine! Delivery for... William Gavendish, 6th Duke of Devonshire. Why, that's me! Sign here. Jolly good. This must be my shipment of bananas all the way from Mauritius. And date? Quite right. Let's see. Eighteen thirty-four-ish. Thanks. Enjoy, pal. Ah, yes. Bananas. I shall give these to my gardener, Sir Joseph Haxton, so he can grow them forthright. Excuse me, Joseph. Can you please take these bananas and grow them in my awesome greenhouse, so that I may entertain my guests with this exotic fruit? Go right, Davido. I shall take these bananas, and in a few years of cultivating, I shall develop my own strain of nana, and name it the Cavendish in your honor, my lord. Then by the late 1830s, I shall have shipped them to various places in the Pacific and what not, perhaps give them to missionaries to bring to the Canary Islands. And if one missionary were named John Williams, perhaps he could bring my bananas and start a banana industry in Samoa in 1838 before being eaten by cannibals in 1839 on the island of Uramango. And by then, the Cavendish banana would be the well-rooted variety in the Pacific by the 1900s. Good lord, Joseph. That certainly is uh, um, a very detailed business plan. As long as I can have my banana pudding next month, you can do whatever you want. I'm off to hunt the foxes. Cheerio! Who would have thought the Brits would have been responsible for the banana we largely eat today? By 1903, the Cavendish was being commercially produced, but wouldn't gain popularity until after the Gros Michel was wiped out. It was then that the Cavendish was found to be a suitable enough replacement. Although not as sweet and tasty as the Gros Michel, other countries soon adopted this banana as their main export banana. Even Malaysia and Southeast Asian countries began exporting and growing more Cavendish bananas, and its adoption was based largely on its resistance to Panama disease. Or that is at least what we thought. It was discovered that the Cavendish was only resistant to the western strain of Panama disease that ruined the Gros-Michel industry. The eastern strain of Panama disease was recently found in 1992, originating in Taiwan and spreading to Southeast Asian countries. Luckily, this strain of Panama disease hasn't hit Central and South America, which are responsible for about 80% of the world's exported bananas. But many scientists think it's only a matter of time before the new strain of Panama disease hits the West, and when it does, say goodbye to the Cavendish. For this reason, scientists are working hard to develop a new commercially viable banana that can stand up to the newest Panama disease. Now, bananas are prone to other diseases as well, but these seem to be able to be kept largely in check. But because of the genetic lack of diversity, it's best if new bananas can be developed instead of relying on pesticides and such. Seems simple enough, right? Man has a pretty good handle on genes, so breeding new bananas should be easy, right? Well, bananas are notoriously hard to breed. That's why we just use the simple cloning method of cutting off a shoot from a parent plant and replanting it. The bananas we eat are what are known as triploids, in where the plant has three sets of chromosomes, while bananas are diploids, where they have two sets of chromosomes. Under normal sexual reproduction, a parent will pass on one set of its chromosomes, and the offspring will be made of one set from each parent. This is normal, and the resulting offspring are fertile and are able to reproduce on their own. But with our mutant bananas, the plant expresses three chromosomes, making it infertile which is good if you want small seeds, like in watermelons or bananas, but bad when you want to reproduce. Now, occasionally, through some rarity in genetic alignment and science stuff that I'm not qualified to explain, a triploid will be able to reproduce sexually. Selective breeding of triploid bananas requires a painstaking process of hand-pollination, One fruit in 300 will produce a viable seed and only one in three of those seeds will have the right amount of chromosome configurations that will allow a banana plant to germinate. This applies of course to the commercially grown bananas as I've stated wild bananas can reproduce this way without help from humans. But as you can imagine it takes time. And with bananas being the fourth most important food crop in the world behind wheat, rice, and corn, it's easy to see why we need the banana. But as I mentioned earlier, there are over 1,000 varieties of bananas, so I'm pretty positive that even if the Cavendish goes by the wayside, a new top banana will appear, and it might be even better tasting. And now you know what I know. So, I enjoy bananas, of course, and although I have probably only eaten two or three types of bananas in my life, as you will sometimes find smaller and red bananas in the grocery store, it's safe to say there is a severe lack of taste knowledge, at least in the U.S. when it comes to banana varieties. And that's largely because of the exportability of other banana species. But if you visit places like Southeast Asia, you'll be treated to a wide variety of bananas which are more tasty than the Cavendish. And contrary to popular belief, the Gros Michel isn't extinct. Although rare, you can get it here in the US. You just have to go to smaller growers and enthusiasts as its commercial viability was devastated by Panama disease. And the claims of its vastly superior flavor may be a bit overhyped. While true, it has a better flavor, it might be described simply as just more banana-y tasting. And it is far from the best tasting banana out there. As I said, you might have to travel to a Southeast Asian country to sample some of these. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to someone who has sampled these other bananas, and even tasting the Gros Michel which can be found in Asian countries more readily. So did you know that bananas are also slightly radioactive? Don't worry, lots of things are, but bananas contain a naturally occurring radioactive isotope called potassium-40. Have you ever heard of the BED? It stands for Banana Equivalent Dose, which is used to inform the public of low-level, naturally occurring radioactivity. And it does this by comparing the radioactive output compared to that of a banana. To give you an idea, 1 banana is equal to about 1% of your normal daily exposure to radiation. So just doing your normal everyday activity, you are exposed to the same amount of radiation as if you ate 100 bananas or 100 BEDs. A nuclear power plant is allowed to leak 2,500 BEDs per year. And a CT scan blasts you with 70,000 BEDs. A dental x-ray gives you 50 BEDs. For you to die from banana radiation, you'd have to eat 35 million bananas in one day. Although some sources said 100 million bananas within two weeks is the lethal dose. I think it's safe to say you die from a burst stomach before you even get close. There is another interesting banana fact out there, or rather a myth, perhaps. It is said that banana-flavored things, like candies and such, taste more like the long-gone Gros-Michel banana. This myth is around because, as you may know, banana-flavored things don't taste like the Cavendish banana we all eat. It must have been based on what the Gros-Michel tasted like, right? Well, in reality, banana-flavored things derive their taste from a compound that is found in bananas called isomyl acetate. You can call this the essence of bananas. There is little proof, if any, that shows banana flavoring was based on the Gros Michel. However, as the Gros Michel is known to just taste more banana-y than the Cavendish, it's somewhat just coincidental that it tastes like banana essence because the Gros Michel had a less complex flavor and probably indicates that the isomel acetate compound was just more stable in that particular banana. So, if you run across something that smells like banana, like some yeasts and even bee stings, it's because of the isomyl acetate compound. And now for something as satisfying as a banana, the haiku! From fruit to ice cream, be it in hammocks or seats, I love bananas. And that's all the time this week, guys. Check out our main site for other stories on incrediblestoriespodcast.com. Send me an email or haiku at contact at incrediblestoriespodcast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod. Rate us on iTunes and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh. And remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word. Good.